Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. And I'm Travis Mattingly. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast, where this time we're talking about a big dude. A big, angry <laughs> dude. Not very angry. Not very big, actually. But a dude, nevertheless. But also, potentially not really a dude either. I mean, like, it's a, mostly it's like a skeleton. Yeah, I was going to say there's a 75% chance he's a skeleton. But it is a very wrathful skeleton it is a very wrathful skeleton indeed don't get it twisted we're talking about the death knight this time on tooth and nail that's right death knight this undead shit is mine motherfucker it's not a (laughs) fucking game (laughs) you guys probably know what this is right like not not the dmx reference you guys probably know what death knights are they're pretty popular in things it's it's a pretty common fantasy trope is the idea you know when a good person becomes bad, in this case, when a holy knight turns evil and then dies before fixing them being bad. They're basically just angry magic skeletons in armor, and they're pretty common villains in D&D stuff, and then also that whole World of Warcraft thing as well. I do feel a little bit silly for liking Death Knight so much because it's such a tired fantasy trope, but goddamn does it work. I'm, I just, I'm, I'm gonna, I... I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be such a popular trope if it didn't. That is true. Work. That is true. And I feel like I'm going <laughs> to absolve myself just a little bit just by saying that I'm flat out always down for a skeleton in armor. <laughs> that's and fair. It, I think that's a platform that most people can get behind. Regardless of your feelings about Death Knights, you just. Who doesn't love a skeleton in armor? Yeah, also like a sentient skeleton in armor who is capable of being just like. A Skeletor-esque villain. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's kind of not necessarily a Skeletor-tier villain, because Lord knows <laughs> nobody could reach that lofty height. I guess so, yeah. But there's definitely, like, they're definitely gunning for, you know, you want to make a Darth Vader? Here's your Darth Vader. They're definitely trafficking in that sad, tragic, backstory villain kind of thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> their, their name is what we would consider now as edgy. Yeah, yeah. But they they don't necessarily articulate as edgy. There's definitely, like, it. you know, we're going to get into the Dragonlance shit in a minute because there's a lot of Dragonlance yeah. stuff around the ethos of the Death Knight, and we're going to start talking about... Don't... Lord Soth fanboys, don't you worry. There's plenty of Lord Soth up in this one. So uh, <laughs> don't go anywhere if you want your dose of Soth. I'm going to hit you with some weird, obscure facts. Mm-hmm. And it feels like what they are trafficking in is that mid-80s Dragonlance high drama kind of almost Final Fantasy tier tragedy. They're not necessarily trying to make it feel like a big angry Lich King style badass. They're trying for more. It feels like they're trying for more of like a classical like, oh, my love that I've lost forever. I am now accursed. Yeah, absolutely. And so I I feel like that's a little bit more palatable to me, right? You know, as I've mentioned a thousand times, whenever D&D tries to feint towards badass, like, look at this cambion, it's got a big old spear and tattoos and shit, isn't it awesome? (laughs) I usually just walk on by that. But I think that there is a tone to the way that Death Knights are portrayed in this particular edition that I like a little bit more, even if it is mostly just Lord Soth shit. And that, you know, could very well be because I grew up reading Dragonlance books. Oh, who knows? Well, yeah. Mm. I mean, like, full disclosure, I've never read any of the Dragonlance books. Oh, boy. But the vague amount of, the vague amount of knowledge that I have about them is that, is that they come across as incredibly, uh, uh, what's the word? Burn. 
what's the word? It's uh, articulate, I guess. Yeah, there's kind of <laughs> like a... The it's... The whatever whatever the um overdone version of poetic is. Yeah, it's kind of overwrought. It's a little bit like it's very gothic romance kind of thing. Yeah, that's that was the other one I was looking for was like a like a rom the romance era, not a romance novel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But truth be told, I still like them. Even like mechanically, I still like them. There, I have quibbles here and there, but I think that on the whole, this is. A win. I think that this is a good boy. That's good because it's a uh, very high CR and high, highly usable monster. Yeah, so, yeah. I think that. Good. I think <laughs> yeah. If you're looking for a, if you don't want to do a vampire but you still want it to have the same energy as a vampire, consider Death Knight. <laughs> yeah. But without any further overwrought ado, let us like gently drape our way on in to this episode. <laughs> So in terms of the artistic representation that we get, the Death Knight art is, truth be told, and this, you know what, I'm gonna just gonna lay all the cards on the table. I didn't recognize that this was supposed to be Lord Soth, which is like, basically like the Strahd of Death Knights, until I was done analyzing the armor and the art that we get. So I, and Lord Soth fanboys, put yourselves to rest. I do think that the Lord Soth design still holds up. It's not just nostalgia. Yeah. I do think that the it's incredible Death Knight... because it's barely changed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I too looked back a little bit, and I was surprised at how much the silliness of it remains, which is great because I think it's the silliness, the kind of surreality of it that I like quite a bit. And I think part of the reason why I like this design so much is precisely because there is a clear stylistic through line way back into the weird surrealist 80s stuff. Like, I think I like it precisely yeah. because it has that choose-your-own-adventure kind of quality to it. It's not, it's expressly not going for the overwrought World of Warcraft, big scary dude in big ol' armor. It's very, at least the picture that we have here is very, like, elegant, and it almost, it almost feels like Dark Souls. Yeah, I was gonna say, it looks classical, but, like, at the same time, modern. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, when you think about, like, how classical armor in fiction is... It can vary just widely, wildly, but, like, it's usually overdone. Yeah. But this feels classic still while looking pretty modern. It's like the dark fantasy style, right? It's It has it yeah. looks like something that could exist in real life, even if it would never exist in real life, right? <laughs> Good dark fantasy, not dark fantasy where there's a lot of spikes. <laughs> no, no, no. I, yeah, when I say dark fantasy, I mean, like, Dark Souls or like Darkest Dungeon or stuff like that, where everything has right. a basis in reality. It's just like adjusted. It's tilted just a smidge into a different direction. Yeah. And in fact, before I realized how ironic this was to say, I did compare this figure that we have here to Artorius a fair bit before mm -hmm. I realized that Lord Soth is basically just the Artorius of D&D. <laughs> so yeah, so this is already something of a tried and true design. So, you know, take whatever I say with a grain of salt because... This, by necessity, doesn't necessarily match the rest of the 5th edition art style. Uh, and I do heap some praise on it precisely because it feels like something different. And, like, just to, you know, talk about what it is we're actually seeing here. It is, you know, a dude in plate armor, but not in the way that you would expect from 
traditional like sword and sorcery power fantasy armor it's very like form-fitting it's plated it's like pleated almost like the plates are pleated if that makes sense it's yeah. like cascading it's, down it's very it's like not, it's not really like the western fantasy armor we're used to no, which... it's not. And, you know, I was stumped at this. I spent, like, 20 minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but in the Google language, like, 20 minutes is basically browsing the entire Jedi archive. I was looking for, for effectively ages to figure out what the stylistic progenitor was for this armor, and eventually mm -hmm. I settled on... It looks like Turkish. It looks like the Ottoman yeah. Empire, kind of. It doesn't look like Western European armor. It looks like that sort of like west asian kind of style yeah as soon as i read ottoman empire in your notes i was like yep that's the one that's yeah. exactly what i was picturing it's like uh i had seen an armor that looked very similar to it in mountain blade the game exactly and that's kind of what linked yeah. me back to it as well i was like that looks like those dudes yeah it's wild because there is nothing else like that in fifth edition really absolutely like. not and that was what i think drew the death knight to me the first time i saw it the first time i saw it admittedly i was like oh boy how creative it was to do this subtle ottoman empire design spin on a very common european fantasy trope and then i realized that it's fucking lord soth and that this design has been around for 30 years and then i was like oh man but it's still you know it's very understated the armor is detailed without being big and expressive and cartoonish it it's so like elegant like the lord soth in this picture he doesn't even look aggressive his sword is sheathed he's just standing there he's got his torch in his hand which like i don't know what the fucking torch is about someday you'll tell me but it does look like a dark souls character it doesn't look like a creature that's raring to do some murder it looks like uh, just like an elegant gothic fantasy romantic knight it does look like yeah. it, it, the the art style and like kind of getting into some of the more particular details. There's the plate armor. The sword is sheathed at their back. He's got the torch. The armor is like adorned with this cloak, this dark blue cloak. And then the top of his helmet, which like, by the way, the helmet is kind of fucking awesome. It's a full face helmet that has like crown points at the top. And then, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The helmet is sick. The helmet's so, like... But it's not, like, traditionally sick. Like, it doesn't have horns and shit. It's just, like... Yeah, it's not... Like, it's... <laughs> I think the reason I like it so much is because it looks like the helmet is one continuous piece into the armor. Yeah, yeah. It all looks of one piece. It's very... It's very elegant. And then, like, on the top... Yeah. Sorry, what were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna... Well, uh, probably what you were about to say is, like, yeah, I really like how... Uh, sleek and elegant it is, and then it goes into the crown, and then in the middle of the crown is just a real nice plume. Exactly, exactly. And, like, with the plume and the cloak and the torch, you do really get the sense that this guy was a crusader, like, that this guy was a paladin, which is the case, right? You'd think that this guy was the protagonist, was a hero, if it weren't for the glowy yellow eyes and the skeleton hand that's peeking out. You'd think that this is, oh, this is, this is our paladin guy. I'll tell you... I looked at this picture for probably 35 minutes, and then I saw the skeleton hand. It's so awesome. It's just peeking out there. I, I just, I, I didn't, it like phased over me completely. I didn't even register. I was like, oh man, I wonder what he looks like. Oh wait, that's a skeleton hand. Yeah, it's, it's so cool. Skeleton. It's so good. It's so subtle. I feel like in a lesser design, or at least, and, and I know this kind of to be true, because I did do a little bit of history look into how Death Knights were portrayed in past editions, and they usually are just 
big armor skull guys like obviously just a skeleton thing it's so nice to see like and this is getting into sort of the high-minded english major stuff but it's nice to see this figure that almost looks like ashamed of what they are now right there the skeleton is not obvious it's hidden away which is appropriate because lord soth as a character kind of hates the thing that they've become in that you know traditional darth vader kind of way yeah before you get the sense that i'm slobbing dnd's sword too much <laughs> i do recognize that a lot of this stuff is pretty standard fare in fantasy it's just like you know yeah. compared to i don't know take your pick compared to the crawling claw which while was while it was a very good hand it was just a hand or like compared mm-hmm. to bugbear which is like a wolf man it's nice to see something that has a bit of character to it that is a little bit more complex than just oh i want to smash the party yeah it's really cool to have a monster i it's it sucks because it's hard to say this because it's technically like an npc because it's fucking lord yeah yeah again this isn't necessarily (laughs) fair because this is a character and thus has some degree of complexity to it to have a portrayal of a monster i'll say in the book that isn't in like combat stance like he's just standing there yeah spoiler alert it's not a torch Oh. But he's standing there with a torch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I assumed it was some sort of divine focus or something. I don't really know what it is. I'm I forget. Yeah, we'll get there. I got I got some stuff to say. We'll get there. Alright, well when we get to the Lord Soth hour, you can tell me about it. Yeah. But yes, it is this very understated, elegant, realistic, but still kind of surrealist kind of thing. It looks again like something that could exist. And I like it quite a bit. And it's so, like, colorful, too. Like, the blue cloak with the reddish plume cast by the, the torchlight or whatever the fuck it is. It's so... Yeah. It's 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 really good. And before I realized that this was Lord Soth and before I realized that this was a beloved Dragonlance character, I was legitimately, sincerely ready to say that this was my favorite design in the book. Expressly because it is so <laughs> subtle and that the Death Knight character has, like, a character to them and that there is some degree of thematic extrapolation that you can draw from the design because you know i feel like again it is lord soth and this character has goals and motivations and whatnot i do think that Mm -hmm. the you know i'm ashamed to be a skeleton thing could be applicable to most death knights because they do kind of have that tragic backstory to it i think that the game is expressly trying to get you to make a villain that hates the fact that they're a villain yeah uh so I think that the, similar to that, yeah. yeah, I think the thematic stuff still, still, that's, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the thematic stuff still read to me, even before I realized that this was a particular character. Oh, show is good, is good art. Yeah. I don't want to bring this up after lore, because I've got more stuff to say after lore. Okay. I want to bring up how weird it is that Lord Soth is who is portraying Death Knights in this the fifth edition book. Right? When Dragonlance has been dead for like 10 years or whatever, basically. Not only that, like D- Lord Soth, like full, full, full stop was created by the authors of Dragonlance. Yeah. Who were not like actually really related to Dungeons and Dragons as a game at all. And to the point where D&D after after Dragonlance got super popular, uh, they had like reference to Lord Soth and the Death Knights in the advanced D&D uh, book uh, because Dragonlance was super popular. And then 
they put Lord Soth in the Ravenloft module back in the day. Yeah, well, those are the same authors that created Ravenloft, right? Uh, Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss. Or... Uh, if that's what the what you looked up said, sure. Uh, what I saw was that the people who created Lord Soth didn't give them permission to put it in Ravenloft, and D&D told them that they didn't own Lord Soth. Right, right. So, like, there was a lot of weird, like... To the point where I think in like 2003 or something, they came out and said that when Lord Soth was transported to Ravenloft, he was immediately transported back to Dragonlance, like whatever land he's from in the Dragonlance books. Uh, like, so there's this weird, like, Lord Soth hasn't been culturally relevant or even like a part of Dungeons and Dragons since like second edition. Yeah. And I... for some reason, a decade or more later, he is now just the face of Death Knights in 5th edition? That's just real weird. It is very strange. <laughs> so, so, as far as I can tell, they were created by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, uh, Lord Southwise. Okay. They, I, the, the, the same pair, they did create Ravenloft stuff, basically. Like, so, so, I wonder what the copyright deal was, exactly. There, There's, like, this whole, uh, like, I guess, debacle about uh, stories being written about Lord Soth in Ravenloft that they were not a part of. Yeah. And that yeah. got them all... Maybe, yeah, maybe... Well, who knows? I am not going to be able to follow this closely yeah. enough to be able to speak to what exactly the legal stuff was. Yeah, plus I can't find a whole lot about it. I just thought it was weird that just out of nowhere, three editions later, <laughs> yeah. he just... Yeah, well, show back I, up in the monster manual. Yeah, I imagine that maybe I imagine that the creators are probably on better terms with Wizards of the Coast presently, like with D and D as a whole presently, because you know, Curse of Strahd was probably in development at that time. That right, had the blessing yeah. of the Ravenloft creators. I maybe they were like, yeah, it's fine. Fuck it. I want to see a cool <laughs> new version of Soth. Yeah, gift. That's it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine maybe they were on better terms, and that's why we got a Lord Soth as the picture, as opposed to just a skeleton in armor. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. I, I, it, again, like I just thought it was weird, and I didn't want to bring it up during lore because it's not about lore; it's about yeah. the art and the fact that he's there. So, yeah. like, yeah, 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 it's weird. Who knows? So, in terms of the lore that we get about Death Knights generically as a whole. They're basically fallen paladins, as I mentioned. Holy knights that have died in sin. Kind of non-specifically, and we'll find that, you know, we do get a big old blurb about Lord Soth, and then the three paragraphs that we get about death knights as a unit are not as detailed as I would like. So kind of non-specifically, evil powers of some indeterminate <laughs> origin can reanimate these dead paladins, and in undeath, they become death knights, which are basically just skeletons in plate armor with glowy eyes. This is... Pretty much the only thing a death knight can be the real question is that i have could a paladin i understand the the spirit of the writing my question is could a paladin that has broken their oath in a non-evil way become a death knight like if i'm a vengeance paladin and my oath is to kill bad people if i break my oath and instead just like hug a murderer or give a murderer therapy do i still become a death knight if someone happens to reanimate me later just by virtue of my oath being broken like, I'm technically uh, living in sin based on the pact I've made with my god. I guess it really... I guess the more important question is, is it the dark powers that make them death knights or the oath being broken then, yeah. That is a very good, interesting question. And I was, like, thinking about some of the finer details about this. 
I almost think mm-hmm. it's the latter. I I do kind of think so. Like here, the the next point that we get is Death Knights still retain their ability to do divine magic, even though the Death Knight loses their ability to heal with that magic. Which like, like what the hell, right? Like, wouldn't God just be able to cut you off from your magic once you break your holy oath anyway? Like like okay, Anakin Skywalker, I'm gonna take away your cure wounds. Oh, by the way, enjoy the smite that I'm still letting you cast. Seems kind of neglectful, which does kind of, to my mind, imply that Death Knights are drawing their magic from whatever it is that resurrected them, basically just making them holy-themed warlocks, which, you know, we all know that is basically what a paladin is anyway. Yeah. And the weird thing is, is that there are a couple of details in the mechanical stuff, and I'm just going to keep, like, going back to this deepest lore theory for the rest of the episode whenever I find evidence that supports me and nothing else. All right. But I do feel as though there is some credence to this idea of Death Knights just being holy warlocks, or at least unholy warlocks. Right. I... Hmm. I'll talk Hmm. about it as we go go step by step. Uh, This is the the overarching, this is my thesis, and then by degrees I'll give you the evidence as it comes up. In the meantime, enjoy some dungeon clues that we get. So we get that lesser undead, like skeletons or zombos, they're all drawn to the Death Knight, who will often command these lesser undead as a senior officer. This is somewhat adaptable. So like, for example, Death Knights might serve a fiend and consequently might have fiendish followers like imps and shit instead of skeletons. But this is mostly just telling you that these Death Knights, they are big deal enemies and consequently they'll have minions whenever you get around to facing them, which I I find to be important to how a Death Knight encounter goes. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about that near the end of the episode. Moreover, moreover, just like any good D&D villain, a Death Knight will often ride into battle on a skeletal warhorse or a nightmare, which is pretty common fare. Strahd is a big nightmare aficionado. Basically, if you're a D&D villain, you get yourself your government-mandated nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely. How else can you be threatening? Exactly, right? Gotta Ganondorf that up. He rides a horse sometimes. Eh. (laughs) But again, this is basically just letting you as the DM know that, you know, if you're, feel free to throw nightmares in play or feel free to throw skeletons into the fight. The other big cool thing about the lore that we get is that Death Knights do retain their reanimation, their undeath, even after being destroyed, ostensibly. They'll keep rising again and again, like in Dark Souls, until they atone for their sins or redeem themselves in some other way, at which point they'll receive their for real death. Which means you get yourself a recurring villain, which is good because most recurring villains in D&D don't recur more than like twice. They usually just get straight up murdered because a team of D&D characters are real good at straight up murder. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's nice to have a creature that can be reliably used as a recurring villain because of this. There's no dissonance. They both can be murdered and also can be recurring. And D&D does do this with a couple of other creatures, most obviously vampires. They get their get-out-of-jail-free card. Rakshasas get their get-out-of-jail-free card. Same goes with Death Knights, and I wish that, as is so often the case I'm finding more and more, I wish we got some specific mechanical pins for this stuff. Like, with vampires, mm-hmm. we get, you know, a vampire will turn into mist, return to their coffin, and then reform after 24 hours. I wish that there was a... You know, a Death Knight will reassemble its body bits after three days or whatever. Yeah, there... <laughs> I I should have looked into the mechanics of Death Knights from previous editions, because I imagine they also had this reanimation thing. It's funny, because Lord Soth has a totally different reason that he gets reanimated so often, and it has nothing to do with his being a Death Knight. And I... Right. Man, 
Yeah, I think <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I can see how that would be problematic. It just, it feels sort of like they they were like, what can Lord Soth do? Oh, he can reanimate, he's a skeleton, he has all these cool, like, paladin powers. Yeah, that's just what Death Knights can do, I guess, without, yeah. like, looking into why Lord Soth can do these things, but... Yeah, it does feel almost a little bit fanservice-y. I didn't want to necessarily go there, because, like, it's not the big... It wouldn't... It's not necessarily the same as an Artorias figure or as, like, a Darth Vader figure. Yeah. It's it, like, it, I, I... Personally, I didn't know who Lord Seth was before, like, you told me. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it almost feels more like a reference than fan service, which is why I'm not grumpy about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there is the 11-year-old in me that did grow up reading Dragonlance and is like, oh, cool, way to not let the flame die out, right? Way to keep Lord Seth yeah. in the zeitgeist to some extent especially since Dragonlance is effectively no more. Maybe I'm also just succumbing to the fan service, so whatever. I mean, I don't think it's bad. I just, I don't know, it's funny. Like, having done some research into Lord Soth, it's just funny where his abilities kind of, like, overcross the mechanics for what Death Knights can do in 5th edition. Exactly, exactly. And I, I just, even if they had just ripped it wholesale from Lord Soth, I would have liked some of those mechanical details like I, we still we don't really know how a death knight gets made i kind of wish we had some that like in the same way that we do a, with vampires or with liches yeah yeah but then DD gives us a nice little example of a death knight so what happened with lord soth <laughs> i was gonna say as the book says uh he was basically just a paladin baron guy it was lord soth yes mr soth yes uh he had <laughs> Big important thing to say first, he had a wife. Yep, he was super married. That's an important, super married he was. Incredibly married. Incredibly married. So one day, he saves this just hot elf girl uh, from an ogre. And Mr. Soth, uh, Dr. Soth, Mm -hmm. he decided that he liked this elf more than his wife. And so he hired somebody to murder his wife. Yes. Yes. That is what we get in the book. There's in the full story, which I, I did read, it's complexified a little bit, but like, Uh I mean, there's, he's still a bad guy, right? There's no, once you get to wife murdering, there's pretty much no shade to that. You're still evil. There's just a little bit more shade thrown at it than just Lord Soth wanted to doodle this hot elf, and so he killed his wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, <laughs> and so that happened. And so that happened. And then just being kind of like at this point, uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that I don't think is actually mentioned in the book as to what happens. Hold on. Let me real quick. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah, so basically Yeah, there's a very important detail left out of this uh left out of this blurb that is part of what I wanted to say about how it seems like they kind of misunderstood how Lord Soth's abilities worked. Yes. He goes off on a quest to find uh the the rod of omniscient wisdom as he was told by three elven maidens. So, yeah, so like in the full story Lord Soth, he becomes a monster. He starts being mean to his new hot elf wife. And so he prays for atonement and in the full story ends up getting this redemption quest from this this trio of elf maidens. Yeah. Uh, they, they basically he like goes, he finds the fucking, he finds it. He finds the rod of omniscient wisdom, this great artifact that's supposed to help him redeem himself. Mm. Uh, turns out it was booby trapped uh, oh. with 
uh, the the coffin that it is within uh, has a velvet pouch that is cursed. So would that anybody take the rod from the coffin, their soul would be put in the bag, basically. Oh. The, the bag becomes his phylactery, right. and he is essentially turned into a lich. Oh. Uh, after he takes this rod. Like, in so many words, he basically becomes a lich from this as his soul is now in this phylactery. And this is why he can reassemble himself and is immortal. This is why he, yes. So he, this happens. The maidens, like, use this kind of, like, he's cursed now to be, like, your wife is unfaithful to you. And they they basically, like, egg him on to go home and kill his wife. (laughs) But then, uh, I guess a chandelier falls on them while they're having an argument. I'm yeah. not totally sure on the details there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, that's that's interesting. I didn't realize that that... I thought you were... When you mentioned that there was a detail about his immortality, I thought you were going to say it was because of Tachesis, which is like the, the goddess of evil in the Dragonlance setting. And I was going to be right. like, yep, that would be a problem for trying to port that over to just general D&D stuff. Um... But no, he, uh, yeah, he's sort of just straight up a lich. Uh, and so because, so basically the chandelier falls on his wife and child as they're having an argument about supposed infidelity that uh, probably isn't true. Uh, he just decides to not save them from the fire. Yeah, he's just like, fuck it. Life is bad. Fuck it. Yeah, life is bad. Fuck it. Let's just all burn together. And the whole manor burns down with him inside of it, except that he's a lich now. So he comes back to life. And I suppose that is the evil powers that turn him into a death knight. That's interesting. That's interesting because I read it. I I, a different story that I read. I I don't think I read as much as you did. I checked out a different version of the tale and it's kind of cool that we're getting this weird like revisionist mythology alternative like alternative tale yeah it's kind of cool so like the the story i heard was you know yeah he's he's a baron he wanted to doodle a hot elf he's married he murdered his wife i read that the there was a little bit of shade in that the wife his wife had given birth to a demon uh due to a prophecy so all right i guess we're getting into the whole fucking thing so basically what had happened as i read it was he was basically looking for an excuse to not have his wife anymore so he could doodle this hot elf. Yeah. I read that his wife uh, was, there was like a prophecy going on that was like his wife would give birth to a creature that would, or would give birth to a child that would take after his father. Uh, and everybody was like, oh, Lord Soth is a paladin. He's a baron. He's a good guy. The child will be a nice strapping la- young lad. Lord Soth is actually an asshole. So the wife gave birth to a demon. Lord Soth took <laughs> this as like infidelity and sacrilege and his wife was consorting with devils and succubi and incubi and shit like that. So he murders her. It also, you know, may have just been an excuse to doodle this hot elf. Remarries, turns into a shithead, accidentally hits his hot elf wife, feels bad about it, prays for atonement, gets this redemption quest from these elf maidens. And then like the way I read it, he was just like straight up too anxious to finish the quest. He was just too concerned <laughs> that his hot elf wife was going to cheat on him that he just was like, nah, I'm not going to do it. That's hilarious. 
And then his house burns down. He's like, fuck it. I don't care. Life is bad. You guys can die. And his hot elf wife curses him to be a death knight is what I yeah, read. Yeah, uh, that's right. I do remember the curse. I do. I, for, I forgot about that detail. As they're dying, she does put like it says she puts a curse on him. I did forget that part. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still cool because I didn't get the the detail about the, the rod of insight or whatever. Yeah. And that's <laughs> like taking that and putting it. That is the torch he's carrying yes. in the picture. The rod of omniscient wisdom. And there is, if you, at, like, Googling it, like, asking people, why does Lord Soth carry a torch? Nobody can fucking tell you. <laughs> and I, figure, I figured it out. There you I go. I figured it out. My boy. There. <laughs> and I think this is a design choice that I'm not positive that the people who drew him know what they were referencing. Uh-huh. There, there's a video game that came out. Yes. Back yes. in the advanced Dungeons and Dragons days called the Death Knights of Kryn. Yes. And the main plot of the story is essentially like you need to get this rod of omniscience from uh from the Soth from Meister. Lord Soth and kill him with it and then put it in the hands of whoever to destroy it. Mm. And on the cover of it is Lord Soth just kind of holding this vague rod above his head and it's sort of on fire. Huh. And it's the only depiction of him holding like a torch. Yeah, yeah. And for some reason now, ever since that came out, like if somebody draws Lord Soth, he's just kind of got an ever-changing kind of magical scepter torch. So I guess it's always just the rod of omniscient wisdom. Well, there you go. I mean, way yeah. to, to literally not let the flame die out right uh, artists yeah. the funniest thing about it is that i cannot like i have looked and looked and looked and i cannot find out what this rod does it makes you more yeah i i guess it just i it's like if you put it in the hands of king priest of Istar, the cataclysm could have been prevented and that's like it yeah that's, that's i don't the only... get that because if it's so as somebody who did read that series did read the Dragonlance stuff. I don't understand how that would have been. Is maybe it's supposed to make you wiser? Because the idea is in the Dragonlance set. Well, man, this is a tangent. In the Dragonlance setting, <laughs> the king priest of Istar or whatever, he's like a a Julius Caesar figure in this ancient time where he becomes both the leader of this somewhat decadent Rome allegory city, and then he yeah. does this big ritual in order to become a god, and the gods are like know you and then they destroy the world basically <laughs> like it oh good yeah Dragonlance is kind of a post-apocalyptic story <laughs> not actually not in the mad max kind of way but yeah. it, the the major inciting event for the world's history is this cataclysm that redoes the world because of this hubris pope huh yeah so like i don't understand why him having this special artifact would make him less greedy yeah, that <laughs> it seems truly it seems like uh, just some kind of weird device to make Lord Soth a lich for some reason. Yeah, fuck it, whatever. So on the whole, I do like the the lore that we get. I think the fact that they set up general rules for a Death Knight and then provide you with a prototypical Death Knight is very helpful. You know, they want to sell the idea that you too can make your Darth Vader, and here's the steps to having your own Vader. So I like having the example of Lord Soth while at the same time having just the general this is what a Death Knight is logistically kind of thing. And again, like yeah. as somebody who read these books as a kid, it is kind of nicely nostalgic to have a legacy to these characters to see Lord Soth again after all these years is kind of cool. 
but yeah, that is lore stuff. Do you have any any final thoughts on lore stuff? Uh, not necessarily. There's just a tiny bit of like lore stuff that has to do with the mechanics of this stat block. It's you know what? I'll just say it right now. Having Lord Soth as the uh, picture for the Death Knight is like in the book where the picture for the vampire is Strahd. Yeah, it is kind of weird, right? It's like this. It's like his stat block would be way better than this one. Yeah, yeah, it is a little weird. And then also, you know, I did feel like I was slurping down some dumb fuck juice for not realizing that it was Lord Soth until the very end. Well, so. well, yeah. So they they made a dupe of me. You get this time, Perkins. But I'll be back. <laughs> So in terms of the mechanical stuff that we get, what we have here is a Ganondorf or a Darth Vader or a Sauron. It's basically just like an evil magician warrior that I think is pretty fun and versatile without being too overpowered. I'm not like, it's a little shaky uh, just because of what I personally like in terms of my game design, uh, but we'll, we'll get into it. Basically, the Death Knight as a whole is a medium-sized undead with a chaotic evil alignment. And shouldn't they be lawful evil? Mm. Well, we'll hold on on this for a second. Oath, there's oath, an Oathbreakers. I'm going to say Oathbreakers. They broke the law. But they're, yeah. Okay, so there's that spin. But also, they're also, in the lore, commanders. They are people who follow a hierarchy to, to establish rules and order for an undead horde. But meh, fuck it. Yeah, all right. We'll, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. All right. They have a very high CR of 17. This is definitely an end game friend. This is a boss villain person. They have for, even for their high CR, they have a above average AC of 20. They are in plate armor. They wield a shield, which again, you'll have to calculate in case you do end up making a dexterity death knight that is dressed up in leather armor and has a rapier or whatever. To counterbalance their high AC, they have a very, 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 very below average HP of 180, which is pretty minuscule for the kind of boss that it is. Yeah. But we'll see that they are really defensive, so you can pretty reliably chuck these at a comparably leveled party and not necessarily have to worry due to some stuff that we'll get into going down the line. They have a regular speed of 30. Meh. And the attributes are what you would expect to see from a paladin kind of figure. They have very high strength and very high constitution. They have high wisdom and charisma, and then they just have a regular old dexterity and a little bit above average intelligence. They get bonuses to dexterity, wisdom, and charisma saving throws. The charisma one is whatever, but the fact that they have the dexterity and the wisdom bonuses, which are fairly sizable, it's plus six and plus nine, respectively, paired with this first trait that I'm going to talk about in a second. Spoilers, they have magic resistance, which for those of you in the know is kind of a big deal. These two things paired together means that you're going to frustrate a lot of your casters, which oh, yeah. isn't necessarily my favorite thing, but uh, we'll, I guess, again, we'll get into it in a second when I start talking about encounter stuff. So being undead, they are immune to poison damage. They're also just flat out immune to necrotic damage, which is kind of rare, but uh, fine. As always, they're immune to the undead stuff that undead are immune to, like being exhausted and being poisoned. In what I hope is a nod to their paladin origins, they're also immune to frighten, which if it is supposed to be a reference to the fact that paladins are usually, they can't be frightened. 
I think that that is kind of a cool reference. Yeah, I mean, like, looking at this whole stat block, it looks like just a character sheet for a 19th level paladin. Yeah, with some exceptions. Uh, yeah, I guess. Like a 19th level undead paladin. <laughs> uh, yes, but with some exceptions that I want to talk about that also faint at a different kind of class. Okay. So if Exhibit A was the chaotic evil, Exhibit B, they get dark vision out to 120 feet, which is a hell of a lot, and I have not a clear idea why, right? Like, they're resurrected by darkness, they're evil, fine, whatever. Warlocks get this thing called Devil Sight, where they get dark vision out to specifically <laughs> 120 feet. So if we are leaning uh, into this yes, idea but that... but it doesn't say magical darkness. It does not. It does not. You're right. You're right. That is true. <laughs> I'm just listing potential things. Just listing, just listing things that I know about. That, that, We're just talking. We're just talking here. We're yeah, just I just here. hypothetically, maybe Death Knights are <laughs> warlocks. What have paladin spells? I'm just. Who knows? They also have a reasonable 13 passive perception. Whatever. They speak common, and they also speak abyssal. And I don't necessarily Ooh. know why that is. Perhaps it's the language of their patron, right? <laughs> so like. So, no, no, so, like, bear with me here. This is kind of ontologically interesting, uh -huh. right? So, Death Knights, they are chaotic evil in alignment, like demons. They speak abyssal, like demons. They can consort with, the book says non-specifically, fiends. Maybe Death Knights are secretly the pawns of demons, right? So, like, you know, there's Orcus, which is the lord of the undead, the demon lord of the undead. Maybe Death Knights, this dark power, maybe Death Knights are secretly all warlocks of the, of Orcus. Right? Maybe they draw their magic from the dark power of Orcus. All right. Uh, I'll give that to you if you consider my counterpoint that they are an unused subclass of paladins to Orcus. Yeah. I mean, like, at that, well, I, then we're, and then we're getting into the meme shit where, like, paladins are basically just warlocks anyway. Yeah. Oath of the Death Knight. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think that, but I think that is almost like, it feels like that's the deepest lore thing that they're kind of hinting I'm, at almost. I'm on your side, if only because one of the paragraphs is titled Eldritch Power. Exactly, right? <laughs> Eldritch Power talking about, Eldritch Power talking about, like, fiends and consorting with non-specific fiends. And then, like, again, like, even after all of this, the, the first trait that we get, that trait that I mentioned, Magic Resistance, is a, a common trait to fiends and demons. And it, it just, like, the pieces fit together just enough that it does kind of feel like... I almost want to go back to Mordenkainen's and look at Orcus's traits and see if maybe mm. this overlaps with the magic resistance and then also the next trait that they get called Martial Undead, which it gives immediate undead in the vicinity advantage on being turned by clerics. And I wonder if maybe yeah. Orcus has that one as well. I don't know. I this I'm kind of putting this together as it goes along. But, yeah, okay, so you you're going into the you're falling in deep. I'm you're going into the D and D dream theory. Yeah. Now th then Han Solo shows up and he's like, "You guys want to party?" <laughs> anyway, so so magic resistance it gives the Death Knight advantage on saving throws against spells and other quote unquote magical effects. They just kind of hand wave whatever. This isn't really such a big deal for the blasty wizards like the ones that throw fireball and shit since most of the time they'll just do half damage anyway and since the death knight doesn't have that much hp it's not a big deal because they can probably just half damage their way into bloodying the death knight in a couple of turns but yeah so it's not so bad for those guys but for the debuffers and the crowd control guys you know the ones that are like i cast hold person i can see this being very infuriating because 
unless the DM is rolling like actual garbage, the Death Knight will literally never be affected by any of your spells. Yeah. Which kind of sucks, because yeah. to my mind, D&D isn't very kind to people who want to be the debuff caster anyway. Yeah, unless you have some way of buffing your DC. Yeah, so it's not my favorite. I understand where they're coming from. Like, if you were to put Hold Person on a Death Knight, it would be the end of the encounter, basically, because they don't have that much HP. Yeah. But me, personally, I would rather have just had them inflate the HP a bit more and deflate the defensive stuff just a bit. And this, again, stems from my common gripe with these more defensive creatures, which is that I just don't find missing very exciting in my tabletop game. Very fair. Yeah. But whatever, that's just... Uh, that's just like my opinion man so the second trait that they get is called martial undead where unless the death knight is incapacitated in some way and you know it kind of implies that they've been knocked out the death knight can be charmed although so they could be incapacitated through some of those weird charming spells that incapacitate people i super doubt that any of your players will think that the death knight can be charmed and this kind of again leans back into that idea that i've often had during the show which is like boy i wish that D&D would just do it like Pokemon and just be like, undead have this resistance, this cannot, oh, yeah. these, this immunity to this condition, and that this is true for every single undead. For sure. The idea is that unless the Death Knight is incapacitated, itself and any undead creatures of its choice within 60 feet of it have advantage on being turned, as in turn undead, as in cleric stuff. Again, this is just supporting the idea that these boys like having minions around to order, and that this little trade here is to help protect those tiny little skeletons that are going to be wandering around during this fight. <laughs> Which could be also, I don't know, it's, I, the reason I don't like advantage against turn undead is because, like, clerics can't do it very often, and, like... Yeah, I see the, what you're saying. The, the real good feeling of being able to turn slash destroy a wave of skeletons, ah, man. Yeah, <laughs> you are basically just kind of crippling one of the main features of clerics. Yeah, like, it's it's fine against, like, the boss, right? Like, if he had turn resistance, that'd yeah. be fine. But it's, like, giving it to all skeletons within 60 feet is kind of, like, yeah. really, man? <laughs> it, it does kind of suck. I see where they're going with it, where they want to ramp up this figure, and there is yeah. some degree of sense to be made about how this Death Knight would be able to buff skeletons and undead around it. I, yeah. I, I don't like it here, but I do like it with, like, um, ghasts the the upper level ghouls right i don't like it here because i think that the death knight is going to die last in this encounter whereas i mm -hmm. think that this trait is a lot cooler when you do use it in instances where it causes people to focus fire on a specific target right so if it is yeah. six ghouls and a ghast and the ghast is giving the ghouls this ability it's a lot cooler because then you can be like fuck kill the big thing and then the big yeah thing we goes gotta down get in you... there and kill the ghast yeah and then it feels like you're making a tactical decision this, it does just kind of feel like, hey, you can't turn shit here, boyo. Get fucked. So, yeah. I don't like it here, but yeah. I do like it in other circumstances. Yeah, for sure. So, yes, as mentioned, Death Knights do have access to paladin spells, to divine magic of dubious origin. Up to fifth level spells, they have a below average save DC of 18. Although, as we so often disclaim, save DC averages get a little bit wonky at higher levels uh, due to proficiency and whatnot. Yeah. They also have an average plus 10 to hit with their spells, though I don't think any of their spells use spell attacks anyway, so fuck it. Their spell list is an array of self buffs, like they got magic weapon, an elemental weapon, a couple of the paladin smite spells they have, searing smite and uh, stunning smite or whatever the other one is. They have some debuffs like command and dispel magic, 
And then they have some really good crowd control spells like Hold Person and Destructive Wave, which is kind of like Thunder Wave, but bigger. And then my personal favorite, Banishment, which basically just makes someone <laughs> go away until the Death Knight loses concentration. Your favorite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my favorite and Travis's least favorite because it's my favorite <laughs> and he runs our games. Your favorite. <laughs> There's a lot of fun, oh shit moments to be had here with the spell list, and I think that the crowd control spells the Death Knight gets helps a lot with the problem of, you know, just getting straight up moshed by three fighters or whatever. It does, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that, you know, with the the destructive wave, which give, makes people prone or gives people a chance to be prone, they can slip out of a lot of bad situations using the spell list. It yeah. does feel a little bit weird that they don't get animate dead, but that's so such a minute gripe that I don't even care. Yeah. The spell list is actually one of the things that made me go like, oh yeah, Lord Soth is just here to be the face because his stat block would be better. Because, as I mentioned before, uh, he's basically just a lich because Lord Soth can cast, like, power word kill and <laughs> yes, that is true. other ninth of level spells. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always, I guess I always read Lord Sloth. Lord Sloth. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll do the quest later. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I always read Adorable. Lord Soth as a cleric, I think. Mm, yeah, that I, would make sense. Neither here nor there, really. Yeah. In terms of the other actions that the Death Knight gets, they get a three-part multi-attack with its long sword, uh, or alternatively, a just big evil Ganondorf fireball. The long sword gets an above average plus 11 to hit, doing 9 1d8 plus 5 slashing damage, plus 18 48 necrotic damage, almost like they got their smite all the time, because their Orcus is proud. <laughs> the Death Knight can do, like, one more point of damage if you two-hand the sword, but it's so not worth losing the AC bonus of the shield, so I wouldn't even bother just to have it be like it is. The two damage yeah. that they might get is not worth it. Yeah. Putting it all together, as is, the damage is pretty below the supposed average for the CR, but because the Death Knight has access to a couple of pretty nasty smite spells and a couple of buffs and whatnot, they can reliably pad out their damage to a much more respectable level. They also get that big Ganondorf fireball. It's called Hellfire Orb because, of course, once per day, <laughs> the Death Knight throws a Hellfire Orb that explodes in a 20-foot radius. Each creature in the area has to make a, you know, in quotes, below average DC 18 deck save. I say below average because it's technically below average, but really only the monks and the rogues and shit are going to be able to save out of this. Yeah. If they fail, they take 35 10d6 fire damage and 35 10d6 necrotic damage with half damage on a successful save. Truth be told, the damage doesn't really strike me as all that dangerous at this point in the game. Like, obviously, if you roll max damage on both rolls, you can really fuck things up real hard for the team. But at this point, like, the PCs are anywhere from level 15 to 17, and if they are all the way up to level 17, as D&D suggests they should be, these guys are shrugging off meteor swarms and shit like they can handle something like this oh yeah for sure like i mean like the rogues and the monks and some of the rangers they're just gonna laugh this right off right it almost yeah feels... it's it's weird that it's once per day and not a recharge yeah it almost feels like it's a contextual thing it feels as though it's there like it's the damage here is balanced for an encounter where in addition to the death knight you're also dealing with a bunch of skeletons and a nightmare or whatever, which is great that they set it up that way because it lines up with the rest of the lore and some of the traits that we get about the Death Knight. I, I do appreciate that they almost are downturning the HP and the damage that the Death Knight can deal in order to 
make it more easily slaughterable in the kind of encounter that they suggest you should use the Death Knight in. Do you think that if this ability was a recharge ability, it would be more useful, or do you think the Death Knight would get more out of just doing any of its other stuff? I think that the Death Knight has so much going on that you really want to be using its spells more than this Hellfire thing. I think that this is... It almost feels like a pacing break, right? Like, you're... And, and I have a fairly... Not, like, complex, but I do have a lot of thoughts about Death Knight encounters. Mm-hmm. I think that in a super cool ideal scenario, you're fighting the Death Knight and all of his minions. You kill all of his minions. The Death Knight's like, enough! And then throws down a big old fireball, and that's kind of the phase two split uh... point. Like, you don't necessarily want to use it at the beginning because it's not a huge deal. But if you use it maybe midway through the fight when the characters are kind of drained, this might be more interesting. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's just kind of the feeling I get. Yeah, it's a good good read of the ability for sure. Save it for like halfway through the fight. Yeah, at least sometimes. We'll we'll talk about it in a second. Or if like you've already held multiple people. Yeah, yeah. Like if you've got the, oh shit, he banished the cleric. What are we going to do? Oh, God, he's dropped fireball on us. Oh, no. <laughs> I think that that could be kind of cool and interesting and exciting. Yeah. Very lastly, for what the Death Knight can do, the Death Knight gets a parry reaction, which we see sometimes in these martial prowess kind of creatures. That happens a lot in knights and NPC warriors and that kind of thing. Basically, if you land with an attack, the Death Knight can add six to its AC as part of its reaction, but only if it's got a melee weapon in its hand and it can also see the attacker. So, like, rogues backstab away. This is the other defensive thing that keeps the Death Knight from just getting blown away immediately. It's not... I actually kind of like parry in the same way that I like um, the martial undead thing in a different circumstance. I like parry just as its own. And I actually almost even kind of like parry here because the Death Knight's AC is not... Yeah, (laughs) it's not all powerful. It's a little high. I don't know. Fuck it. The idea is that it's not all powerful, right? The Death Knight can only parry once per turn, and even though I don't really like impenetrable defense monsters, I do like the action parry in the same way that I like legendary resistances, right? Where when you have a monster with legendary resistances, it forces the party to have to be tactical and kind of bait the Death Knight and to some extent the DM into blowing this resistance or this parry on less dangerous things in order to set up for more dangerous things. So like, if you as the party know that the paladin has a big smite left and they want to use that big smite, but the monk is going to come first in the initiative order, you can kind of bait the death knight to blow its parry by trying to slap him with stunning strike or something, something that sounds kind of dangerous, but is not as dangerous as the big thing that you want to hit the death knight with. To my mind, it's a very cool proactive strategy, which we don't see often in this game. Usually it's like, oh, fuck, the Bahir did a shit ton of damage. We gotta scramble and recover. This is more like, uh, how do we bait the DM into parrying this wimpy fighter slap that we're gonna do in order to have our swashbuckler run up and get a big old sneak attack? Yeah, I really like I, I really like it for that. I I am also a sucker for the, uh, the old, like, oh, man, the Death Knight's been bloodied for, like, two turns. That means that any hit could do it and like one of your big heavy hitters is about to attack it and you as the dm just pull out the parry on the, oh, the, sure. the big attacks or yeah, something it also turns i'm yeah. really into that too yeah it can also <laughs> be used for a really cool oh shit moment where where a player says like 25 to hit and you get to be like no no that's too low yeah it's quite good i like parry <laughs> quite a bit and 
mostly because it does function like a legendary resistance. And since we're talking about legendary resistances, I was kind of expecting the Death Knight to be a legendary monster when I first took a look at it. And I can see why a big yeah. badass villain creature might want to be a legendary creature and why it might come across as not like a big badass boss creature because it's not legendary, right? So like when I looked down mm -hmm. and I saw that it didn't have layer actions and it didn't have legendary resistances and it didn't have legendary actions, I was like, oh, maybe Death Knights aren't all that badass. But truthfully, like, I don't think the Death Knight needs them, really. So in what, to my mind, is the ideal encounter, the Death Knight, A, a lot of its spells are bonus actions, right? A lot of its buffing spells, like Magic Weapon and such, and all of its smites are bonus mm -hmm. actions. So its verb set within a turn is pretty robust. Its defensive stats, you know, its AC is high, it's got parry, so it doesn't really need the legendary resistances, like parry more or less does what a legendary resistance would do. And again, you know, it's got all these crazy saving throws, and this legendary stuff is mostly just there to keep a single boss monster, one single boss monster, from getting swarmed by five frontliners, right? Yeah. But since it's basically baked into the Death Knight that they're going to have some skeletons or nightmares or stuff on their side, they'll probably just be good in the action economy regard, because the idea is I don't think you're ever supposed to just fight a single Death Knight. Yeah, I get that feeling too. Yeah. Generally, like, things that have, like, a buff buffs creatures around it. It definitely feels like the kind of thing you should never be fighting alone. Yeah, so while I would like to see a legendary Death Knight, just because I like looking at big tough monsters... I think that as it is designed, the Death Knight is better off without legendary resistances or actions. I think it would be too much to handle, especially with the spell list and all the smiting and all the stuff. Yeah. I'd like to see a legendary Death Knight, I, but I would like to see a Death Knight who is designed around having legendary stuff. Like maybe if there was a phase two Death Knight, that would be kind of interesting where the Death Knight is by itself or something. Yeah. It's, it's wild because like... I try. I was curious, and just I went back to look at the vampire stat block because, as I said before, it's the Lord Soth to the Death Knight as the Strahd in the book to the vampire stat yeah. block. Yeah. Uh, but the vampire one is a legendary creature. Like yeah. vampires get legendary resistance and action, and like. Yeah, but I think that, and it's been a little bit since I've looked at the vampire stat block. Vampires are yeah. kind of built to be self-sustaining boss fights, right? They're constantly regenerating. They're, they don't necessarily summon right, a whole bunch yeah. of stuff. Like, they summon bats, I think, uh, and whatnot. Yeah, they, they, they have the ability to summon wolves or bats, yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be the I'm a commander in a legion of undead fight in the same way that the Death Knight is. I think the vampire is yeah. like, hey, I'm a vampire. Maybe I have my little necromancer friend or whatever, but you're fighting us more or less by ourselves. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, I guess I always attributed legendary stuff to the challenge rating. And it was weird that, like, vampires, like, CR 13. Yeah. And it was weird that, like, it would get them, but Death Knights wouldn't. But then, I guess yeah. it does make sense also. I kind of wish that they hadn't flavored it as legendary. These are the baddest of the bad monsters. Yeah. When it is pretty much literally just there to be like, you can fight this guy by itself and you don't have to throw in adds or minions or whatever. Yeah. I guess they could, I was about to say, they could have called it, like, bonus action. I was like, wait, fuck, that's a thing. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. I guess that is part of the point of this show is to help clarify these kinds of things. So, like, for those of you who maybe aren't are somewhat new to D&D, &D, just know that if you see legendary actions or whatever, it more or less just means that this is the kind of creature that you can reliably throw by itself against a party of five variously leveled characters 
Whereas if you yeah. don't see legendary actions, it means that feel free to throw in some some minions or whatnot. So the encounter. Yeah. I think that the Death Knight, being an immortal recurring villain, ought to recur. I think that this should kind of work like a power curve celebration kind of villain, right? So like a like a Capra demon from Dark Souls or like that thing that happens in some video games where it's a boss in the first half of the game and then it's just a standard enemy in the second half of the game, right? I kind of want the feeling yeah. of, oh, fuck, we're overpowering this thing that trounced us like four levels ago. And that's kind of what I imagine in the overarching plot of this adventure, this should go, right? I, I think that the first time the players face off against this Death Knight, whatever you've made this Death Knight out to be, they're kind of underleveled. Not by much, but by like just enough to feel it. Like I want the players to be maybe level 13 or 14 against the CR 17 thing, just facing off against just the Dark Knight, just the Dark Knight, just facing off mm -hmm. against the Death Knight itself, right? So I want them to win. I want the players to kill this Death Knight, but just barely, right? Because oh, the yeah. Death Knight isn't built to fight. Even if they are level 13 or 14, the Death Knight is still not built to fight five adventures by itself. So I think the players will still win, but it'll be like, fuck. I want them to yeah, feel like be, you'll you'll say damage numbers the first time and they'll be like, oh, OK, yeah, but they'll still win. But they'll feel like I, the ideal feeling is that I want them to feel like if the fight had gone on one or two more rounds, they would have been obliterated. And you can kind yeah. of pull this off as DM. You know, you can make the fight a little bit easier. You can make it a little bit harder. You can have the Death Knight hold back a little bit. You can have them really rain hell on the party if they're doing well. And you can do this just by, you know, dumping some of the more interesting spells on them as soon as possible, right? So, like, this, at level 13, they might not have had banishment done to them yet. Like, surely somebody has banishment because it's an awesome spell. But there's a good chance yeah. that this might be the first time the Death Knight snaps their finger and one or two of the party members just disappear. And you can... Yeah, that, that's that gotta not be a great feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, like, I'm... Kind of. I, I don't mean like. I don't mean unsatisfying. I mean like. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, and you don't necessarily have to worry about dissatisfying any party members because it almost prompts the party to want to break the Death Knight's concentration a little bit more, and they most likely will fairly early because it's five D and D party members against a monster, and that always yeah. goes in favor of the party. But you can do some things like you know if you start the Death Knight from far enough away, they can just the Death Knight can just be slinging spells like it can throw their orb, which at that point in the game would be very threatening. You know, it can be picking off some more party members with banishment. It can be laying into some of them with smites. Whatever you got to do to put the fear of God in them in a fight where it's them against just the Death Knight. Yeah. And then eventually the party will swarm the Death Knight. They'll kill the Death Knight because the Death Knight's not built for this kind of thing. But what you're looking for is the like, fuck, we almost just straight up lost our cleric or we almost just straight up lost our warlock or holy fuck, we almost just like we almost just died. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the 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 closeness like you want to get it as close as possible exactly exactly and then they Maybe forget even it. like knock out two of the party members oh like. yeah oh yeah and like whatever they'll still be level 13 you could probably kill someone to make yeah. like really drive the point like just fucking straight up kill the ranger or whatever fuck it like they'll take yeah. it they have revivify they'll be okay it's high level D D. fuck it yeah once you get past level 10 you pretty much have carte blanche on their life <laughs> And then they, you know, pick themselves back up. They revivify. They Maybe somebody makes a new character. Who knows? Then, like, eight sessions <laughs> later, 
the party is storming the Lich's mansion or whatever. And then guess who's back? Guess who's walking through the front door of the Krusty Krab? <laughs> and guess who brought some friends? Right? So, like, I'm thinking now the party is, like, level 15 or 16, which in actual D&D speak means that they could probably handle a CR 19 encounter because it's D&D and the players are kind of overpowered. Which means you also don't have to feel bad about bringing, like, eight skeletons or, like, you know, four skeletons or five skeletons in a nightmare to swarm the party. Yeah, absolutely. Which also is kind of good because it gives the crowd control or the debuff players or, you know, the fireball cast in mages, the people who would be otherwise frustrated by the magic resistance that the Death Knight has. Suddenly they have a whole bunch of minions to do all of their debuffing or blasting on. Uh, so they won't be as frustrated by the Death Knight just shrugging off spells. Yeah, thank God. Give them something to do so exactly. it's not just turn after turn of failure. Exactly, and I think that is kind of the way to bring that kind of player in play if one of your mages happens to be a debuffer kind of thing. And then it kind of goes out as you'd expect, right? So the players are trying to cut down this defensive skeleton line in order to get at this Death Knight. All the while, the Death Knight is either banishing or debuffing or commanding or dispelling magics at the party and whoever's maybe overextending themselves like if the fighter tries to push past maybe they exchange some fights with one or two party members smiting all the while to put the fear of god in them kind of pointedly you should be keeping an eye out for the healer like if the healer is keeping on top of things too easily then this is probably where you dump either a big old smite or the hellfire orb thing on the casters maybe just to keep everybody fearful to keep the cleric from from being frustrated that turn undead isn't working and more focused on, oh fuck, he just did, you know, 40 points of damage to the wizard. I gotta go do damage control real quick. Yeah, keep the healer healing, and if the healer is too good at healing and you can't do enough damage to counteract it, banish the healer, maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe for a bit. Uh, why not? Yeah, just just for, yeah, like, you're gonna get, like, probably a, few, a couple turns out of that. Absolutely. <laughs> and then, you know, as always, if the Death Knight starts getting swarmed, like if the monk and the fighter and the paladin all show up, then use the destructive wave a couple of times to get some breathing space. The big important thing is that this might be the first monster we have where it's like, just fucking play to win, right? Like, by this point, yeah. if you've already used the Death Knight once, which I, I personally suggest you should, the party already knows what to watch out for. And, you know, since they're level 17 or something, they already know the game by now. And since death is basically meaningless at this point in the game, feel free to just fucking go for it. Like, have the skeletons, like, have them be archers raining hell down. Have a bunch of skeleton knights. Have the nightmare do nightmare stuff. Kill characters to put them down. Don't just bother with the knockout stuff. Just flat out murder stuff. Like, dump smite on the wizard. Put the death knight out of reach so that the party has to fight through a bunch of skeletons in order to get at the death knight. Just, like, really fucking beat at them. Yeah, <laughs> I just imagine, like, I just picture in my head, like, the scenario of the party focusing on all the ads as they are unknowingly being kited away from the middle of the battlefield and the Death Knight just walks calmly to the wizard. Like, you shouldn't have left your wizard unattended. Mm hmm Heart meet sword. <laughs> and this is all to a point, because while the AC of the Death Knight is fairly high, again, this isn't a very sustainable monster and i think between the glass cannon casters who are going to be doing damage reliably with fireballs and the monks and the fighters who just have a bunch of attacks i think that by degrees the low hp and the fact that the death knight can't heal themselves i feel like once 
fighting starts in earnest, the fight won't last too long, which means that you got to yeah. be brutal for as long as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then all the while, you get to be making these cool tactical decisions like, oh, fuck, they banished our archer. How are we going to do damage to this guy? Oh, fuck, the, he just commanded the fighter to kneel for the entire turn. What are we going to do? You get to make these yeah. kind of cool tactical decisions. It's really awesome being able to have, like, a, a monster in an NPC. Every time we get one with higher intelligence, I say this, but it's just really cool to have a, an, a monster that, like, you can tactically command, like, in character, tactically command things around. Yeah, yeah. And the players are expecting the Death Knight to be a threat because it is such a big old villain, which means you kind of got to be threatening in this one. Yeah. Because the 180 HP ain't going to do it. Yeah, no. That's like, mm, I'll be generous and say five attacks. Yeah, yeah. I At the very <laughs> least, like, you could do that in three rounds if you get off perfect attacks. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, those are my ideas about the Death Knight. It's just, it's just such a cool monster, which shouldn't count for as much as it does, but it's just like, it's so cool and the art's so good. And there's so it's much freedom. It's so cool. Yeah, there's so much freedom for you to make your own little villain. And it's just like it's valuing DM creativity. And I just can't help but like it and see past the somewhat moderate misgivings I have about its AC stuff or like about its defensive stuff. I have trouble, especially now that like you've put the idea in my mind. I have trouble not seeing this monster as cool because all i imagine it is as like a darth vader-esque figure it's what like, they're going for it's just like a big cool fallen knight which is a trope but like it works it's just real cool yeah. and yeah i think the worst thing going for it is as as usual i'd like a couple more lore details about you know how these guys end up being made and like logistical stuff like how do they resurrect themselves and whatnot and i think that in yeah. its worst case scenario if your players are rolling garbage the entire night this could turn into a big frustrating i'm missing every single attack extravaganza but yeah. i i i'm kind of it almost feels like i'm grasping at straws i don't think i have a real fear for the death knight going badly as a fight or as a monster it's a good boy it's a good monster brent mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tooth and Nail, the Monstrous Podcast, featuring Orion Lavelle and Travis Mattingly, recorded on this our this day of our Lord, <laughs> July twenty fourth, two thousand nineteen, at five forty two in the afternoon. Uh, nothing dates an episode like saying the date. <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely. If you liked what you listened to, feel free to listen to more Tooth and Nail. If you're sick of listening to Tooth and Nail, feel free to listen to some more stuff on nerdsmith.org. Uh, we've got all sorts yeah. of crazy good things. Dear DM is always good. Yeah, a lot of good stuff over there. Is there something that we haven't plugged in a little bit? I mean, there were, we've we plugged WAND Radio once. Okay. And listen, listen to One Radio. If you super liked what you listened to, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you may be listening to this episode. In the meantime, what's our creature comfort for the night? Hmm. Creature comfort. Hide your bones. Hide your bones. Hide your Watch bones. out for cursed coffins. Yeah. Reinforce your bones with that cocoa. Uh, get a nice <laughs> milk base full of calcium. Wrap yourself up in a nice velvet cloak. 
Yeah, yeah. Feels good. Get a cool plume. Mm. <laughs> watch them bones. Always watch your bones. Have a good day. Goodbye. Thank you.